Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. My name is Gene Tunney. Radical Uncertainty is the title of a new book from two of Britain's most eminent economists. I'm privileged to be interviewing one of these eminent economists this episode. My guest is Professor John Kay, CBE, FRSE, FBA, and Fellow in Economics at St. John's College, Oxford. Professor Kay was appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire, CBE, in the 2014 New Year's Honours for Services to Economics. His other books include Obliquity, The Truth About Markets, and Other People's Money. His latest book, Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making for an Unknowable Future, was co-authored by the former Bank of England Governor, Mervyn King. Professor John Kay, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Gene. Very good. John, I'm really grateful for your time. When I saw this book in Dimmicks here in Brisbane, I grabbed it immediately because I've, I've read books by both yourself and also Mervyn King in the past. And it was so timely too, because it was just at the time that we were learning about coronavirus, but we hadn't introduced the social distancing uh, measures yet. So we hadn't had the full economic impact. And I thought, well, this is a, a very important book, a very timely book. And I know you did make one comment about pandemics in your book, which you pointed out to in a, in a recent uh, blog post on your site. Uh, so I suppose you probably didn't expect that your book would be introduced at this time in history. Uh, but given that it has been, it's a uh, it's great, and I think that it's uh, it could it would help us get through this time. So that's the I'd like to explore that uh, this episode. But to start with, it would be great if you could please explain what you mean by radical uncertainty and how is it different from what uh, economists might call risk or what you label as resolvable uncertainty. If you could please take us through that. Yeah. And if we go back a century, economists, notably Keynes and Frank Knight, made a distinction between risk and uncertainty. And risk was what they thought could be described probabilistically, and uncertainty was what couldn't. And that distinction between risk and uncertainty got elided by economists and financial markets over the next 50 years. So that in the last part of the 20th century, People treated risk, uncertainty, and indeed volatility as if they all meant the same thing. Our argument is that you can't do that. It's certainly unhelpful to do that. And we need to go back and rethink our, our categories in this sense. Now, the way we talk about it is we say that uncertainty arises because our information is imperfect. And that's what makes the world uncertain. We sometimes don't know what the present situation is. We certainly don't know what the future situation will be. Now, there are two ways you can try and resolve uncertainty. One is if you don't have um, uh, uh, enough information, you can go, and go, go out and get more. People may be uncertain what, what the capital of Philadelphia is, but um, if you are uncertain, you can look it up and find out. So a lot of uncertainty you can reduce, even if not resolve, by getting more information. And then there's the kind of uncertainty 
that arises when you uh, have something that is random from a probability distribution. That's where people talking about probabilities started. For games of chance, uh, if you toss a coin or you draw some cards from a pack or you spin a roulette wheel, then there's a known probability distribution and a known list of outcomes. That's resolvable uncertainty in the sense in which we mean it. And you can extend that to talk about things like mortality and things like motor accidents and so on, some of the risks that are easily insurable. You can describe them probabilistically. But what people have tried to do in the last 50 years is to extend this kind of probabilistic reasoning to absolutely everything. And you can't do that. Now, radical uncertainty isn't simply black swans. And some people have talked about coronavirus as if it were what Nassim Taleb calls a black swan, something that you couldn't have anticipated. It's not. Uh, As you politely mentioned in the book, uh, we talk about uh, pandemics, and we talk about them exactly as an example of radical uncertainty. We knew, or we had high confidence in believing, that there would be a pandemic of this kind sometime, some someplace, start us out someplace. But to say it's going to break out in Wuhan in December 2019 is not something anyone could have anticipated. We know something about pandemics, but we don't know enough to make predictions. And a lot of the world is actually like that. Okay. So that's a good place to... Um yeah, to go off from. I think that's a, a good point. A lot of the world really is like that. So the economy and business, I know that those are examples you gave in your talk at uh, LSE a couple of months ago. So you're saying that this fundamental uncertainty or this radical uncertainty which applies to pandemics because we we just don't know just how bad it could be. So I remember I think, oh, was it last month before we had the restrictions in, everyone was starting to worry and we had the everyone stockpiling here in Australia. I don't know if you probably had the same thing in Britain where everyone's rushing out and buying toilet paper and <laughs> yes, yes, and, uh, and pasta. And we just didn't know how bad it would be and it must be very challenging for politicians. So from what I understand, you're saying that this this uncertainty, this applies across the economy as well, across business. We can't d- nicely define probabilities and it's not as if we're taking these, these bets on, on outcomes and we know what the odds are. It's not that at all. It, it's, it's, a lot, uh, it's a lot more uncertain than that. So, yeah. we, we start the book by contrasting the achievement of, say, NASA, who were able to launch a space probe into space to orbit Mercury. And it took that probe seven years to reach Mercury. They had got it to uh, rotate the Earth, then rotate around Venus, rotate several times around Mercury before it moved into position. And after seven years, it went into orbit at more or less exactly the position they'd predicted seven years earlier. Now, why could they, they could do that? They could do that because we know what the equations of planetary motion and rocket motion are. We know the system. We know the model. Secondly, the model remains unchanged over time. And thirdly, the model isn't affected by what we think about it. Uh, you know, people 
the, the transit of Venus isn't affected by your opinion or my opinion about what it is. And these things are true of a lot of physical processes. They're not true, however, uh, of most of the processes we talk about in business and private. Yes, so yes, ex exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I was just losing you a bit there, John. Uh, I'm just saying that's why prediction in economics is a very limited volume. Yes. And we'll I was just thinking there with the coronavirus, one of the things that's been unpredictable is just how the public will respond. And in Australia, we had uh, people still going to beaches in large numbers until they uh, closed the beaches. Uh, so even though the politicians were saying, you need to take this seriously and we need to socially distance, uh, people were still uh, a bit uh, a bit blasé about it all. So yeah. Whenever you've got humans involved, you can get a, a great deal of uh, unpredictability, uncertainty. I'd like to ask about the question that you, you see as fundamental, which I think is a good question, but it's deceptively simple, or, or maybe I'm thinking it's deceptively simple. It's this question about what is going on here? Why is that so important? And the Follow-up to that is, do you think our policymakers were slow to figure out what was going on with the coronavirus, at least in the countries that have been most badly affected, such as Italy and the US and possibly, uh, to a lesser extent, in the US, of course, uh, the UK? Yeah, um, and you're right that what is going on here sounds an extremely banal kind of question. And yet, as we thought about these issues, we, we came to see that was more and more important. Let, let's take an example. It was one of the examples that prompted Mervyn to be interested in, in writing this book. And before 2008, what you had was this massive growth in trade among banks in securitized products. Uh, what was going on there? Why had you with this explosion of trade? And if you ask why people trade in risky assets, there are roughly two reasons. One is they may be trading because one party can bear a risk more effectively than another. And that's why we take out insurance policies and things like that. We're passing risks to people who are able to, better able to take them. And the other is that you can pass risks to people who know less or stand less about the risks than you do. You're essentially passing them off on other people. And asking the question, what was going on here in that run-up to 2008? Why is there this growth in trade? Uh, would have been fundamental to asking, will this process end well or badly? Is it a way of reducing and minimizing the costs of risk-bearing? Or is it a way in which you're concentrating risk among people who don't know much about what they're doing? And in 2008, we learned it was the latter. Now, for coronavirus, we need to ask what is going on here. And we need to understand what is going on here rather better than we do. Now, we can build, <clears throat> we can build quite good epidemiological models. What we don't know in these models is the values of the key parameters. And the two key parameters actually are if someone has the virus, how many people do they pass it on to? And if someone contracts the virus, what is the likelihood 
that they will die or become seriously ill as a result. Now, we still don't know, even roughly, what these parameters are, and we don't know much about what the incidence of um, infection is in the underlying population. Now, interestingly, uh, just in the last couple of days, we have plans in the UK to do some random testing over the next year of people to try and disestablish what these parameters actually are. And if you do that random testing, combined with a kind of contact tracing that was done in Singapore and Korea, then you can get a pretty good picture of what is going on here. The interesting thing is that the costs of obtaining info additional information are pretty small relative to the costs of making policy on the basis of uh, poor information. That's why asking what is going on here is so important and understanding it key to determining sensible policies. Absolutely. I like that example you gave about the lead up to the financial crisis. I was in the Treasury here in Australia in the lead up to that crisis and then through that, the uh, yeah, part of that crisis. And uh, I remember that when the crisis hit, arguably we, because no one was expecting a crisis of that magnitude in financial markets, so we'd come to believe this story that these financial market participants are all consenting adults, they all knew what they were doing, it was all about diversifying risk. It was a bit of a blind spot. And so we had to scramble to just try and figure out what on earth was going on and, uh, yeah, just what the, the problems were and, uh, yeah, what those, uh, those solutions could be. So I think that's a, a really good example okay right and it's what it's certainly what made Mervyn realize the importance of these kind of questions and of asking at an early stage this what is what is what is going on here kind of question that didn't really happen either in the run-up to the in the run-up to the crisis and it was only gradually during the crisis that people started to to figure it out and start and make well we could hardly make sense of it, but to, to the extent that you could understand it, you could begin to make sense of it. Yes. I want to ask now about one of the core concepts in your book, and this is the idea of non-stationary processes. Now, am I correct in saying that if we look at what's been happening in the US with an additional 26 million people filing for unemployment insurance, is that an example of a non-stationary process? Is that a, is that a good example of that, what you're, what you're talking about there, John? It certainly is, but it's an extreme one. And the stationary process, classic is something we were talking about earlier, something like the motion of the planets. We know what these equations are, and the same they're the same today as they were 500 years ago. Now, the underlying equations that might describe a model of the economy, even if you set aside coronavirus, they aren't the same this week as they were last week. The nature of the underlying processes is co constantly changing. And that's what makes it so often misleading to try and represent these things probabilistically. Obviously, the uh, what you've described in terms of the rise in the US unemployment figures is, is in a sense an example of this because 
<coughs> if you were to write down a probability distribution of unemployment data, this is so far out as to be, you know, one of these 25 standard deviation events. And of course, there aren't 25 standard deviation events. What um, these extremes tell you is that that kind of distribution was just not a very useful way of thinking about this kind of problem. Absolutely. And that's the sort of thing you would never be able to forecast or project from a model, I'm guessing. And I'd like to go to your your discussion in the book about modelling. And this is something that's close to my heart because as a former Treasury economist and as someone who does consulting work, I have built and do build a lot of uh, economic models. And uh, what you say, what you write in the book, and I'll quote from page 261, is that you cannot derive a probability or a forecast or a policy recommendation from a model. What does this mean for all the economists who are trying to understand an economic problem? They're trying to forecast the impacts of a policy or an investment project. What does this mean for them? Should we just give up or or is there a way forward? Could you please elaborate on this, John? No, there is a way forward. And let me describe what it is. And I should say I've spent a fair part of my life too. I ran a consulting business where we made most of our money uh, selling models to people. Well, it was quite important that I came to realize that in the main, people didn't use these models actually to make decisions. They used the models in order to justify decisions they had made, either to other people within their organization or to external agencies or regulators. And now that is actually right, because a lot of this kind of economic modeling is saying, people saying we are in a world of radical uncertainty. We don't have all the information we need, so we will make lots of information up. And that's what enables you to fill in all the cells in your spreadsheet and arrive at an answer. But that answer doesn't tell you anything about the real world. That answer doesn't tell you anything about the real world. And we use in the book the example, the 25 standard deviation event. This, this was David Vinear of Goldman Sachs who said uh, in 2007, as the crisis was breaking, we've experienced 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. Now, of course, that wasn't what had happened. Uh, it's simply impossible if you know anything about statistics for there to be 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. In order to talk about a probability in the world, you have to multiply the probability of the Goldman Sachs model by the probability that the model is true. But you don't know what the probability that the model is true is. You just know that it's really very low. It's a misunderstanding of the way in which you use models. I'm still very much in favor of using models. But you use models not to make statements about the real world, but to get insights into the world, which can help you with a much more ill-defined you have to face in, in making decisions. So there are greats like um, Prisoner's Dilemma or the Lemons model. None of these things are, as it were, literally true. What they are are their ideas, their insights which once you've understood them, help you with a wide range of practicums. 
That's, to my mind, what is a good economic model. Okay. But we should still try to say, estimate the impact on households of a tax policy change or the impact on different industries of climate change policies. You're, you're not saying we should give up on that. We should just be realistic about the, uh, the uh, well, believability or the, the actual accuracy of those predictions. Is, is that? Yeah, they're not predictions or forecasts. They're illustrations of what the, Let's take the model of the moment, these epidemiological models of coronavirus. As I said earlier, they're critically dependent on basically three parameters. What proportion of the population are infected? How many other people does an infected person infect? And finally, what's the incidence of serious complications when people are infected? As I say, we don't know any of these parameters. Therefore, we should do two things. One is we should devote quite a lot of effort to finding out, getting better information about these parameters. And the second is we should use hypothetical numbers in these calculations uh, to see what the range of possible outcomes might be. People were saying, if we did this, what kind of effect might it have? And it's very likely that doing that kind of exercise, you will learn this policy might help, this policy is not very likely to help. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's good, John. I might uh, quote from you again. You made a great point in that LSE seminar from a couple of months ago. You said that we need to think of economic models as being parables rather than as true models of the world, and I think that's what you were essentially saying then. The other thing I'll point out, I'll put it in the show notes too, I think you've got some great lessons about using models appropriately in your book in the chapter the use and misuse of models and uh, you've you have first deploy simple models which i like because you can i mean you can spend a lot of time building a hugely complicated model and i mean there are diminishing returns to it aren't there and in fact you could end up with a worse model yeah absolutely absolutely um, yes we talk in the model about my, one of my Noirs, which is the, there's a gigantic cost-benefit model which is used in the UK to appraise transport projects. And if you look on the web that model, it will give you answers to questions like what will be the average number of passengers in a car afternoon in 2036? Or what will the British growth rate be in 2080? Uh, exercises making up numbers like that are just ridiculous. And what becomes worse is when people do, as they sometimes do, these kind of Monte Carlo simulations <coughs> in which you make up a different set of numbers or lots of different set of numbers, and you tell people that uh, the distribution of outcomes of all of these different estimates is a probability distribution of what is of what will happen. Of course it isn't. And the extraordinary thing is that, to my mind, is that anyone would ever think that it was. Yes, yes. Okay. So I'd like to go on to just finally what all this means for decision-making and how we design our systems. And if I'm reading your book correctly, what what I think you're 
writing in that book is that when we're making decisions, we use the models. We don't use them to tell us what to do. They help us make the decision, but ultimately we've got to form that. We've got to form an understanding, a narrative of what's going on here and use that to guide the decisions. Yeah. So we talk about formulating a reference narrative, which is in broad qualitative terms what you're aiming to make happen. And you want to deal with radical uncertainty by formulating that kind of reference narrative and then ensuring that your reference narrative is robust and resilient to things you are not going to be able to predict. And that's, again, it takes us back to this coronavirus um, uh, issue. How do we make complex systems robust and resilient? Typically what engineers do in complex systems like that is they build in modularity, which means that you reduce the interdependencies in the system so that part of the system can fail without the whole system uh, screwing up as a result of it. That's modularity. Redundancy is saying you, you make everything a bit stronger than it needs to be to cope with these unanticipated contingencies. Now, that's interesting when one looks either at the full crisis or at the way business more broadly has behave, behaved in the last couple of decades, because these kind of things, redundancy and modularity, have been regarded as bad things, signs of inefficiency. But actually, they make people's businesses more robust to events they can't anticipate, whether they, were the, they can't predict, whether they were the financial crisis or the coronavirus crisis. And a lot of people are discovering at the moment that uh, lean and just-in-time inventories were not quite as smart an idea as people have thought they were for the last 20 years. Yes, yes, very good point. Uh, and I should ask, because I've been asking a lot of my guests uh, on this podcast uh, about climate change, which uh, until coronavirus was the uh, the big policy issue to discuss and I think I picked this up from your the seminar that you and Mervyn had at uh, LSE if we uh, think about responding to climate change we sh we should be thinking about buying options or because there's this massive well fundamental radical uncertainty and it could be beneficial to give ourselves the option of uh of well responding early and then if it it turns out we don't need to respond then we can wind back the that policy setting I, I think i've mangled that up but is is that one of the lessons from your book there's that again it's about robustness and resilience it's not um a huge amount of effort has gone in the climate change area it's developing models which are examples of what we think of as all these made-up numbers, invent numbers to fill in all the spreads, cells of your spreadsheet. We can't forecast what's going to happen to temperature in 2100. But what we can do is understand better these processes. And what we also need to do, most of all what we need to do, is to go back to these words of robustness and resilience to ensure that within a plausible range of what might happen, given that we can't anticipate where it's going to be, um, our, 
our policies and our economies are robust and resilient to alternative developments. And for me, a lot of that depends on, uh, I think we should be spending a lot more money on underlying logical research, both about how we can reduce the greenhouse gas problem and uh, how we can find methods, particularly of transmission and storage of energy, uh, which enable us to reduce the carbon content of our economies by substantial amounts. Okay, so that's a great... Describe its a, options. Yes, yes, that's a great point to end on. Professor John Kay, I really appreciate your time. I'm going to be recommending uh, everyone buys a, a copy of your book. I've been uh, mentioning it to friends and colleagues of mine. I think it's uh, it's uh, it's very timely. It's a great well review of uh, all of the all of the uh, theory and uh, and evidence r- relating to decision making over well at least the last hundred years. You you mentioned Frank Knight. You mentioned Maynard Keynes and Savage and Friedman, and uh, yes, you talk about the financial crisis and. And uh, I'm sure if uh, if it came out a bit later, you would have had a big section on coronavirus, but maybe that'll be in the, the revised edition. Um, I'm sure you're being asked to comment a lot on, on this issue right at, at this time. So, uh, again, I really appreciate your time, John. Thank you. Talk to you. Thanks. Thank you. We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode, so thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.